Welcome to Nothing Ventured, a podcast exploring the stories that make the incredible world of tech and venture tick. Join me, Arish Shah, as I speak to the founders, investors, and ecosystem operators trying to make a dent in the future. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Nothing Ventured. Today, I am really excited to have with me Brent Murray. Brent is a principal at M13, a consumer tech VC focused on early stage ventures in the future of health, money, commerce, and workspaces. Prior to joining M13, uh, Brent spent time in banking, financial services, and venture capital, as well as having worked in strategy at Samsung Next. Brent, it's absolutely amazing to have you on the pod with me today. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, of course. Eric. Amazing. So let's jump on. straight in. So you went from finance into corporate strategy, came back again. Can you talk us through your journey a little bit and what it is that you love about early stage investing? Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, at, from the beginning, I think my my journey was similar to most undergrad kids, which is don't really know what you want to do after school. And so you you kind of do the thing that will set you up to do the most, you know, give you the most flexibility later on. Um, so I did my undergrad at, at BYU in Utah and um, I joined the business school, um, quickly realized that one of two paths arrived to the top and that was consulting and banking, right? And when I say banking, I mean investment banking. So I really picked the path of least resistance for myself, which I felt I you know, most aligned with finance and and picked the, the banking path. And so Went to all those information sessions. Um, we had a lot of the bulge brackets and, and banks come on campus, and I, you know, aligned with that. So I, I knew I wanted to do investment banking after college, and and got into investment banking. Started at City, and then went to Lazard, and and you know, started my career in, in banking. Um, but during undergrad, I had a really, really unique opportunity to get exposure to venture capital. Um, at the time, this was, you know, I graduated 2013. Um, and so I actually joined a VC in 2011, which I had never heard the words venture capital together before that point. Um, but there was a, a pretty unique structure, um, in Salt Lake city, a firm called the university venture fund. And at the time, I don't know if this is still the case, but at the time it was the largest student run venture firm in the country. Really the structure of that firm was, Two investment professionals, VCs that did this, you know, done this for decades. They started this program where they recruited a bunch of students um, in the Utah area. So there were a number of universities that got recruited, and there were about 30 of us. And we would invest out of a pool of capital that was similarly structured to any other VC in the country. Uh, LP structure, they expected returns. It wasn't a donation to let kids, you know, kind of go off and, and get experience. So we ended up making a number of investments, and, and that's where I cut my teeth in venture and went through the whole meeting founding teams, uh, understanding market sizes, returns analysis. Uh, we made some investments when I was there, and, and that's where I learned about how special venture capital can be. Um, my first ever investment actually ended up going public a lot later. Um, it was a business called Instructure, uh, this Utah-based SaaS edtech company that competed with the, the monster Blackboard. Um now we had a lot of zeros at the firm as well, but um, you know I think we we picked pretty well, and I, I got really great exposure to the the industry there. And so you know even going out of undergrad, um, I had this thought in my mind. Eventually, I'd like to get back into venture because I had a blast doing that. Um, and then you know my my career took me through a couple different paths. Uh, I went to Samsung, like you said, and and I was on their um, their Samsung Next team, which was essentially a a department that was tasked with innovating from within. Um, at the time, 
Samsung was seen very much as a hardware provider. And our group was tasked with building out software and services for our customer base. Um, so we looked at a number of things, including being a telecom provider, uh, healthcare apps, fintech apps, really to just make a more customer or more sticky customer base with Samsung. Um, and then I was fortunate to get into venture capital full time. And I joined Battery Ventures in San Francisco, uh, was there for about a year and a half, um, investing in enterprise software more on the later stage. So we did a lot of growth equity and you know majority uh, buyout transactions. So in the private equity group and just got to a point in my career where um, you know I, I had great experience at, at Battery, really respect the firm, but I didn't love the sector I was working in. I did not love investing in enterprise SaaS. It just didn't speak to me. Um, so I was looking for you know uh, um, a, a way to get back into consumer like I had at Samsung and I was really fortunate to meet the, the two co-founders of M13, uh, Carter and Courtney Ream. At the time, they had just sold their operating business. It was a spirits business called Vive. Uh, they had a really great angel investment track record in consumer and consumer tech over the previous four or five years. And they were using that track record to go raise their first venture capital firm for, um, for M13. So I joined at the time uh, to, to raise the first fund with them. And, and we went to work in, in 2017 to do that. Um, and so, you know, I, your, your last question of, of venture capital, um, you know, and, and what I love about early stage investing, I mean, we are in such a unique and fortuitous uh, position to be able to do what we do. Um, it is incredible to be able to meet with founders every day as our job and, and discuss with them their life ambitions and, and what they're trying to build. And try to diagnose different market sizes and understand team dynamics. Um, so I love every aspect of, of meeting with founders in, in terms of evaluating early stage opportunities. And then I think the other thing that goes unnoticed in, um, in, uh, in venture capital is I remember when I was um, in undergrad and a friend of mine had interviewed at a, a top-notch venture capital firm. And his response to me when he came back was, I now know where all the smartest people in the world go because they know every industry much better than I do. And they know, um, you know, they know a lot about business dynamics much more than I could ever hope to. And that was my first little kernel of, um, you know, the, the level of exceptionalism, um, in venture. And that is the other thing I love about this, this industry is, you know, my, my peers at M13, um, they challenge me every day. Some of the most intellectually honest people I know, um, and then other industry professionals, uh, just, you know, understanding venture capital and, and um, getting to know other venture investors is, is a really special opportunity. And so I love those aspects about, you know, being a venture investor and I hope to do it. For I mean, that's amazing. Time. There's there's a few things that I, I want to pick up on there. First of all, you just made me feel very old. So you graduated 2013. Uh, so that's a fair whack after I did, but that, that's all good. Um, and and I, I think, you know, <laughs> the, what you mentioned about, um, you know, prior to graduating, being able to join uh, that, that university fund effectively that, you know, allowed you to deploy capital uh, on a real basis and presumably this wasn't part of the uh, an endowment for one of the universities or whatever and even if it was i guess that's fine but but um right. you know it, it really gives you that opportunity to to risk some capital and i think this is the whole point about investing is you know for most of us if we don't have our own capital to risk it's very hard to get a feel for that so you need to risk someone's capital right and i think when you're at university obviously 
it's very difficult to get those opportunities. So I think it's absolutely incredible that that, that existed because I think it does a number of things. It, it A, it gives, uh, I guess, students the opportunity, the ability to understand venture as an asset class, but equally to understand, you know, how they can create long-term wealth for themselves and, and others in, into the future in a way that I think, you know, we, we don't necessarily get taught uh, very clearly, certainly at university, maybe in, in MBA classes, but, but, you know, certainly here in the UK, it's not something that is, is, uh, you know, is, is easily kind of, um, uh, uh taught. Um, so I, I, I think that's an absolutely yeah. wonderful kind of thing. And the other thing that I picked up on there, right. Uh, that I think is again, extraordinary, right. Is that the whole, uh, idea of Samsung and Samsung next having this corporate venture, you know, kind of, uh, um, uh, division within the business where you're trying to come up with new ideas. You know, I've, I've looked at corporate venturing. I've seen quite a bit of that, um, in various guises in the stuff I've done and it typically doesn't end up particularly well. So would you mind like talking a little bit about kind of, you know, as a VC investor now as in a traditional VC investor versus kind of corporate venturing, like what are the challenges in, in one versus the other? And, and, you know, how did you see, uh, you know, Samsung's ability to actually uh, drive uh, innovation uh, within the business? Yeah, a great question. I'll, I'll first briefly touch on that first point you made um, about investing in other people's capital as a, as a student. Um, you know, one thing that I learned there uh, that has stuck with me throughout my career was um, I got introduced to this term that I had never heard before um, from the managing director of that program, which was fiduciary duty. Um, I had no idea what that was, right? And he sat us down and explained very clearly um you know, this isn't fun and games. This isn't a school project. This isn't your, your homework assignment that's due next week. Um, you are deploying capital on behalf of your limited partners, and you have a fiduciary duty to spend the time to do the work, to be intellectually honest about the decisions you make, because it's not your money, it is theirs. Um, and they expect a return. And this is the whole, um, you know, fiduciary duty of, of a venture capitalist or private equity um, in any, any, um, you know, job in that field. And so that has stuck with me, you know, to this day. And, and when, you know, we're, we're spending late nights looking at something or we're spending a long time doing that extra leg of diligence, it's really because we have fiduciary duty to our stakeholders um, and, and we need to do right by them. And so that's something that's just stuck with me for, um, you know, for my career. But, you know, touching on your other point on, um, you know, doing something in an, uh, a traditional venture capital group versus internally at a corporate venture arm, um, you know, there, there are pros and cons to both. I'd say starting with the, the corporate venture arm, a pro is you have unlimited resources at your disposal and you have, you know, what you would think would be the best subject matter experts um, in the world. Because whether you're working at Samsung Ventures or City Ventures or Amex, um, your business units that you're working on behalf of those are the best experts in fintech or um, consumer technology. And so you have a level of diligence um, available to very, very select few. So that's a, a very huge pro when you're investing at, um, at uh, you know, corporate venture arms. Um, I'd say a con that you know, most corporate VCs would probably admit to is there is a lot of layering that goes on. Um, you are, even if you're a partner at a corporate venture um, group, 
you have to get approvals for every single investment from multiple stakeholders. It's probably that business unit that you are making the investment on behalf of. And then it is the SVP that sits over them. And then it is the president and CEO that sit over them. And so there's, it, it's a long road to get approval into something. And, and you know, the common uh, complaint from those positions is that things just move a lot slower. Um, and so you know, if you then talk about traditional venture capital, um, it's really on your firm to surround yourself with a network of industry professionals that can at least compete with some of those deep bench of industry professionals that the corporate VCs have. Um, and so I think we've, we've done a really good job of that at, at M13. And, you know, um, we talk about this, this universe approach, or we have a space themed M13. But really, it started with um, M13 is, is the brightest cluster of stars in, in the northern sky. And we figured um, bringing together all the bright stars in the galaxy, they can shine brighter together than they can the individual parts. And some might think it's cheesy, but I like this visual representation of really bringing together an ecosystem um, to make you shine brighter together. And so the, the challenge has been on us to you know, setting up our, our limited partnership with industry professionals, our network, our ecosystem with limited professional or with, with industry professionals that really help us dig deep into industries and understand them in ways that, that others can't. Um, and then, you know, we're not, uh, burdened by a lot of bureaucracy in, in a corporate venture arm, so we can make decisions a lot quicker. After yeah, sure. I mean, we're going to talk about, uh, M13 in a second and I, and I absolutely love that kind of origin story, uh, of the name being the brightest star, uh, one of the brightest star clusters in the Northern skies. One thing that you were, you know, as you were talking, I was just sort of nodding along because, you know, within corporate venturing, often you find alongside the bureaucracy is also kind of the job protection, right? So it almost, it, you know, I think Salim Ishmael, you know, who, who's written a lot about exponential organizations and uh, and corporate venturing you know he talks about it in terms of uh, um, you know a, a traditional corporate's immune system attacking like the innovation because often that innovation may end up killing off you know a large part of of, of what the organization does or has been doing uh, you know the obvious um, example is always Kodak you know where the digital camera w- was was espoused many yeah. years before it became a, a big thing but was kind of shoved in a, in a closet somewhere Somewhere because uh, you know they were like, well, this this will kill our business. So yeah, I, I think that I, I think that for, for people within venture who are often you know looking at uh, the most innovative stuff, they know that also you know time is not on your side, right? There's always someone somewhere looking at doing something similar. Uh, there's always someone who's going to be willing to beat you into the deal if they can. Uh, and so moving fast is really you know is really critical. And I think that 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 absolutely kind of strikes uh, a chord with me when I think about corporate venturing. So, you know, moving on to M13, and you touched upon this, yeah. but it'd be really great to understand kind of why uh, M13 is structured in the way it is, because, you know, you and I talked earlier uh, about the fact that there is a, there, there is a sort of two to one, I think, ratio of operators to investors. So what's the genesis of that? And what, what was the purpose? Yeah, great, great question. Honestly, it's, it's a big part of the reason um, why I came over here in the first place years ago uh, is because this very unique structure specifically for our stage of venture capital. I think you see this a lot more in later stages where they have more resources and they can you know, have more operators internally. But what we saw early days um, when we were setting up M13 was you had a lot of founders that were starting their business and they may have had industry experience, but some of the founders that we were backing were first-time founders. Um, and we know how competitive the spaces are that we're investing in. 
um, for every one company we're backing, you know, we're, we're pretty sure there are a handful of others. If not now, there will be if they see success. And so it's hyper competitive. Um, and it's very, very hard to win in a market. And so not only are first time founders asked to do things uh, they've never done before, pretty much every single day, the bar to do that is incredibly high, because if you're not, your competitors are going to do that. Um, and so we just thought to ourselves, what if we could support our founders in a way after we cut the check that a lot of early stage, you know, call it seed and series A venture firms just aren't able to do. Um, and we, we have the benefit of starting the firm from scratch. And so from first principles perspective, how do we set up the firm? Do we hire the very best GPs and investors possible and then you know, bring on a couple operators that have really good experience and, and plug them in here and there? Um, we decided to do it a little different. We had this thought what if for every one investor, we had two operators? Um, that's a, a great signal effect to the founders that we invest in to say, we're literally dedicating twice as many resources into what happens after we invest than before. Um, and so we had this you know, North Star of, of hiring a, a large team of talented operators. And um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to say, I think we've executed well on that strategy. If you look at M13 today, uh, there are about 30 uh, people at the firm um, our investing team is about eight people and our operating team is over 15. And so, you know, we have that two to one ratio of operators that they're not part time. They don't, you know, spend a few hours here or there with M13. Like I've seen at previous firms I've been at, um, they are full time professionals that they don't invest. They don't source. They just help our portfolio companies execute better. And we have professionals across talent and recruiting which is a, a huge ask of every single company that we invest in. Um, communication and branding. How do you, you make a really good consumer brand with all stakeholders in your ecosystem? Uh, data strategy. You know, you'd be surprised. There's very little um, data analysis going on with some of the invest in, uh, companies we invest in, but we have a, a team on M13 that helps with data strategy. And on and on, you know, there's, there's a number of different um, expertise areas that we lean in on. But it's really, after we invest, we have a welcome meeting with our founders and we ask them, what are your top pain points? What can we help with? And then on an ongoing basis, we're proactively helping them instead of being, you know, I think all of venture really, um, most venture capitalists are, are pretty good people and, and they have a lot more experience than I and, and, and some others around the table, um, but they're not proactively engaged. They're really that uh, you know, resource of last resort. If something is going wrong, you text your, your, your partner and then they will make the connections and help you. We wanted to do that and also be on the proactive side. So helping with ongoing projects that can make you execute 1% better every single day, uh, which will have, you know, a really huge impact later on. And so that's what we've tried to do at M13 and establish a firm in a way that would allow us to scale that way. So we have a number of operators that are um, you know, operating on a full-time business with our, or on a full-time basis with our portfolio companies. Yeah. I mean, you helpful. said it just before you said, you know, you asked them what their top 10 pain points were, but you know, as you were talking, I, I'd almost flip that on its head and say the signal to founders is we know, or you M13 knows what your pain points are. Or if we, you know, or if you tell us what your pain points are, the chances are we'll have been through them or we know how to tackle them. And I think to your point around early, you know, first time founders, especially, and I see this a lot kind of coming in as a CFO, uh, as I did in, in a lot of the businesses that, that I've worked with, 
you know, it, uh, often that gray hair or that kind of experience is is really crucial, really important, and immensely valuable to these founders at those very early stages because they won't have had that experience in their own careers or in in, in their own businesses uh, to, to to know how to tackle those. And especially if you're growing fast, you've just taken on venture. There's a million and one things you need to look at. There's a there's a you know there's yeah. a million and one things that could be a priority. And I always say like if everything's a priority, nothing is. So how do you actually get back to like, okay, what is the one thing that I need to tackle today and, and who can help me do that? And I think, you know, we've, we've seen over the yeah. last decade or so, capital is no longer the di- differentiator. So you've got to be able to offer something more, uh, I think, to, to founders and, and to the businesses that you, you support as VCs. Uh, and, I, and I think the operator model is definitely one uh, that, that, you know, is and, and will be successful. I'm seeing more and more emerging managers take on that kind of, yeah. you know, that, that kind of uh, structure. Uh, so I think, I think that's really cool. Yeah. And yeah, and we're, we're certainly not the first to have done it. Um, we just think that we found a way to um, execute that vision a little bit better at the early stage. There's not a lot of funds and firms that are our size that have that large of a team that can really help in that in that regard. Um, I do want to touch on one thing that you you, you pointed out that I've thought a lot about uh, personally in this industry, which is you know when we come to founders and we say um, we know what you need, we know we've we've been there and done that before. Um, I often like, want to be careful with that as well because you have to strike a balance between being prescriptive um, but also lending your expertise. And so I think one of the underrated attributes in venture is just a level of humility. Um, even though you've done it and you've been there before, um, we approach our founders in a, vet- a much more collaborative way where we say, this is what we think based on what we've seen. Um, if, that, if we're not aligned, let's set up a, a structure or a framework you know, part of our experience is setting up structures and frameworks to help us get to that best decision. Um, and so it allows us to give our, our experience from seeing, seeing it multiple times over and over again, but not be too prescriptive. And it's really up to the founder at the end of the day. And we're collaborative and then we execute together once we've you know, made that. that uh, yeah, I mean, the reality is that you can't see everything, but what you can do is bring the weight of your experience yeah. to, you know, to, to understand how to tackle a problem or the sort of steps that you may want to take to do that. And I think that actually ultimately is, you know, what one needs to do throughout the kind of venture venture journey when you're, you know, when you're scaling a, a business as a founder. You know, I, I myself, there are multiple things that, you know, I don't know or don't like doing, I'll put it that way, you know, certainly around, around yeah, operations yeah. <laughs> or marketing or whatever. And I have, I have some experience, I don't know kind of roughly where I'm going, but I'll always lean on the experts because ultimately, you know, th- they have just that breadth of experience that can at least inform me so that I can make a better decision, uh, whether it, whether it's exactly what they've, they've suggested or not is irrelevant, but it gives me the context that I can, I can work within. Um, I mean, you know, for our listeners, can you explain a little bit about the M13 thesis? You know, you operate at Seed uh, and Series A across consumer, uh, and you uh, focus on commerce enablement. Uh, what are the sort of businesses and technologies that you actually back specifically? Because that's a really broad kind of uh, uh, range yeah. of of, of, uh, of businesses. Yeah, great question. Yeah, great, great question. Um, I would say at a, at a high level, you know, macro perspective, um, the tagline would be M13 invests in changing consumer behavior, right? And so we like to at least spend time understanding the consumer market and landscape and trying to understand where technology is moving so that we can invest in those technologies enabling, you know, changing consumer behavior. 
Um, that those themes that we invest in that we're excited about, uh, you know, we, we can't be stagnant. And so those need to evolve over time as well. And I think what we do is we, we take it on a fund by fund basis and we have a, an honest assessment of where things are going, where, where we think things are going and then set up themes around those. And so for the current fund that we're investing out of, um, and for the near term, the themes that, that we're getting excited about and investing in are really around four areas, um, all the future of, so future of money, future of health, future of commerce, and future of work. Um, each partner in principle really focuses on a few of those and has, has specialties. So I, I cover commerce at the firm, as well as a little of a future of work, um, more specifically focused on the freelancer and creator economy inside of uh, future of work. And then I spend my time on, on commerce. And it's both looking at B2B companies that support uh, e-commerce brands. So looking at the tech stack that supports D2C. And the second piece is emerging marketplaces. So asset light models that, um, that are enabling a new you know, form of commerce with, with customers. So you know, what we've done in that space, um, probably the largest uh, company we invested in to date is a business called Passport. And Passport is, is a good embodiment of, of this uh, commerce enablement thesis. They focus on shipping and logistics for e-commerce brands. And specifically what they do is they look at mostly US-based e-commerce merchants and they help those merchants ship products to customers overseas. And so I think you're, you're based London, right? Yep, that's right. So yeah. if you want to order um, you know, a, a D2C product from a US-based merchant, um, there's often a lot of hoops you have to go through. And what we found is the consumer behavior, there is so much friction that goes on from getting that product from the US to you that most of the time you're going to drop out um, at a higher rate than shopping cart abandonment rates, which are already high you know, in, for US customers. So what, what Passport does is it helps that merchant ship to you internationally. It takes care of the shipping logistics. It also helps you as the customer calculate your duty and taxes in the shopping cart. It then, if there is a problem, they act as the outsourced customer service. If you need to return that item, they help do the reverse logistics. And so they have a whole product of, of suite and services to enable international uh, commerce to, to continue to grow. And um, they have a number of, of really great brands in the portfolio, and we've been supporting them since, since the Series A um, a few years ago, and we're excited about that business. So that's a you know, good example of they don't own any uh, trucks. They don't, uh, they're not an asset business. They just act as the software layer, uh, and they have a network of, of first mile, middle mile, and, and last mile logistics providers to help you know, make that fulfillment possible. Yeah, and I think that that whole kind of thing around enablement is really critical, especially right now where we're going through multiple crises on multiple fronts, You know, whether it's cost of living, whether it's uh, shipping and logistics globally, whether it's you know the, the slowdown in China. China, uh, whether it's a war in Ukraine and gas prices, all of this sort of stuff yeah. all has an impact on commerce in a massive, massive way, right? So the the, the more frictionless you can make that experience for, for anyone, uh, the better it's going to be. And obviously, if your you know domestic demand is dropping, the ability to ship internationally and, and do that in a way that, as you say, doesn't lead to customer drop off uh, is 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 massively valuable. Um, and and I think 
you know, when I think about consumer and, and, and commerce, I'm always thinking about D2C and I'm always thinking about brands and, and I'm kind of sat there thinking, well, you know, how, how many more kind of brands are going to uh, come out and how, how hard is it for those brands to actually, um, you know, compete? Because the reality is even if you think about like acquisition costs, et cetera, at the moment now, everyone is, is, everyone is bidding for the same ad space, right? So it doesn't matter whether you're a, you know, Wilson Sonoma, or you know whether you're you're selling a, a a mattress in a box, it's still the same consumer, and you're still competing for their you know for their wallet. And and actually, enablement goes a step beyond. Like you know, if you are better at doing something that is a massive pain point for your customer, then hopefully that's going to lead to better you know retention or acquisition, and and you know hopefully uh, more value created down the chain. So I think that's I think that's really awesome. And and again, like the themes of yeah. future of money, health, commerce, work, you know, all. I mean, I think we could probably do a completely separate podcast on any 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 one yeah, any one of right. those, if not all four, right? So um, you know, we're we're seeing yeah. so much changing. That. I think. Yeah, I was going to say. I think you you summarized our thesis in commerce enablement well um, in talking about some of the challenges that D2C brands face. And, you know, if you look at the history and the origin of M13, um, the reason we were able to raise our, our first fund in, in 2018 was because uh, our two co-founders had a really successful track record of backing um, D2C brands in the age of, you know, when, when D2C was, was still a, a, an area of investable capital for venture capitalists, there were a lot of D2C white spaces being created not a ton of competition yet. And we made a living doing that. We invested in Daily Harvest, uh, Tacovas, FabFitFun, Rothy's, Ring Doorbell. There were a number of D2C brands that we backed early on. But then to your point, around that 2017, 2018 timeframe, we just saw it starting to plateau a little because customer acquisition costs um, became, um, became unsustainable. And that's even gotten worse over the years. The level of competition... Um, a little bit created by some of the commerce infrastructure provider themselves, because when Shopify big commerce came up, it then became much easier for anybody. You or I could set up a, a merchant shop and, and start selling. As long as we saw some um, you know success from another merchant in that area, we knew there was a buyer. And so we had started a show, uh, start a, a store. Um, and so you just saw rising CAC level of competition that it hadn't been seen before and we saw this opportunity to move away from investing directly into brands into supporting the ecosystem. So, a, you know, people call it a pick and shovel approach, but we just saw this enablement infrastructure um, as the way to bet in commerce going forward, because we still believe that there were going to be many more Shopify merchants over the years. We just wanted to, you know, back the infrastructure that was supporting that instead of betting on the individual brands. Yeah, it's it's probably less sexy, but I think it's more sustainable. Is is the way I would think about it, right? And and tell me what what is most yeah. important when you are investing? Is it the team? Is it the tech? Is it traction or something else altogether? And how does that change for you when you move from C to to Series A from your perspective? Yeah, um, we, we actually we do think about it differently from seed to series A, and we have different qualifications for each. And so, you know, I think a lot of people in venture will tell you it's a it's an art and a science. Um, the earlier you go, it's it's more of the art, right? And the later you go, it's more of the science. Um, we're we're hyper aware of that, but we're incredibly quantitative thinkers as well. And so we've tried to bring in a, a quantitative measure with with everything we do. Um, the way we think about it is we have five main criteria that we actually put pen to paper on for every company that we're evaluating and we'll assign a number to it. And in addition to all of the qualitative work 
that goes into investing early stage. At least we have you know this nice rubric of a number that pops out and allows us to kind of compare company to company across the four you know the, the portfolio or opportunities we're looking at. And those five areas, um, first, it starts with the team. You know, um, how competent in the industry is the team? Do they sell well? Um, are they good storytellers? Because that not only helps them raise capital later on, it helps them hire, it helps them recruit talent. Um, do they have that, you know, killer instinct? Can they do what it takes? Um, so the, the team is, is incredibly important in the decision we make. The second area we look at is market opportunity. Um, you know, if everything goes well with this business and they execute at a hundred percent level, are we talking about a 1 billion TAM opportunity? Are we talking 10 million? Ten billion? Are we talking five hundred billion? You know, we we spend a lot of time thinking about what can be massive markets, and you can have a really great company that is executing well, but if it cannot capture a large enough market, it's it's probably not worth a venture investment. Um, the third area is business model slash traction, right? And so this matters more so with Series A, but we look, you know, how is growth look? How are the unit economics? Um, does it make sense? Are they able to make money over time? Uh, the, the fourth area is fit with M13. Um, and this is a big one for us because we have a, a whole operating team. You know, we call it the propulsion team. And if we don't think we're able to add value after the investment, it's not a good fit for us. It might be a great company, but if it's out of our domain and we can't add that value afterwards, um, it's just not you know a good investment for M13. And then the last area is really just more of the the fund dynamics, right? We call it portfolio construction. But at the end of the day, if, if one through four boxes are checked and it's a perfect business, but we can only invest a minimal amount of capital, it's not going to make a difference for the fund. Um, and so if we can't get our ownership and you know the amount of capital we need, you know, we have to live to fight another day. Um, so those are the five areas. The way it changes is in a seed stage business, when it's much, much earlier, you have less data to go off of. We weight the first two categories, um, the founder and the market, much, much higher than the other three. Whereas in a series A, it's pretty evenly distributed, you know, needs to check all of those boxes. Um, But when we look at the seed stage, man, it's a lot of time on how is this team? How have they performed in the past? And can this really be a massive market, even if it's small today, we we kind of think about um, market sizes in two different dimensions. One is market penetration stories. So you might have, this is big in commerce, you might have a massive $100 billion market, but only 1% of it is online today. But we believe that that's growing to 10% over time. So there's this massive opportunity to to get into that penetrating market. And then there are a lot of expanding market expansion opportunities, which is the second area. A lot of our crypto investments and Web3 fall into this category where there's not a big market yet, but we see industry dynamics changing and there's this market expansion story that can be much larger over time. I mean, we're early investors and, and we need to bet on uh, you know the future of changing consumer behavior. And so a lot of times those are very, very exciting opportunities if there's a new market being created. Yeah, I think there are a couple of things that I really want to pick up on there. F- firstly, you know, team 
I, I think I've said it now a dozen times, if not more on the podcast, every single investor I speak yeah. to, like ultimately it comes down to the, the team, the founder, the, the execution ability, the capability. And, and it is team rather than the founder themselves, right? Because it is, it is just yeah. as much the founder's ability to attract a great team as it is you know, for, for them to have the knowledge and experience or, or, or that something that, that tells you that they're going to be able to attack this, uh, this opportunity. I mean, obviously market has to be there, you know, from a venture perspective, but the, the thing that I think I would love to actually explore this in more detail, maybe not on this podcast, but I think it's, it's one, uh, in the future, uh, is, is portfolio construction. Cause it's something that I don't think founders necessarily understand or probably don't understand, right. Which is ultimately, in the same way that, you know, as a founder, we may think about our unit economics, i.e. we have to sell at least this much to this many people and make sure they don't churn uh, to ensure that, you know, we're recovering our acquisition costs in the right way. From a VC's perspective, if you aren't constructing your portfolio in the right way, then, you know, to your point, you're deploying capital without necessarily having uh, the ability to recover that, right? So as an example, if you are investing, uh, you know, if you're investing, uh, let's say, million-dollar check sizes, uh, at, but, you know, valuation is at, I don't know, whatever, 50 million, uh, it just doesn't give you the ownership, uh, you know, doesn't necessarily give you the ownership um, uh, that you need to, to, to make that, uh, you know, to make that investment actually pay dividends down in, in, in the future. And I think that whole area of portfolio construction of how venture funds actually think about uh, how they invest, because it's not just about the, you know, innovation. It's also about how do I return funds to our LPs? Because that ultimately is the name of the game. Uh, you know, I think, I think that's, that's a really interesting. And I think it's really interesting that you, you have it as one of the five criteria. Like, I mean, it's, it's, it's something that I know VCs think about all the time, but it's not necessarily explicit in the way they think about their, uh, you know, the, the, the deals that they're, that they're looking at. Yeah. I'll, to that point, we, we can spend a couple minutes on it for sure. Um, but to that point, I'll, I'll put a plug in here. Um, this is, I have no uh, gain from this. I have no marketing, um, you know, affiliation with this, but I think the best um, resource and, and one of the best books that I've read on, on this topic is um, Secrets of Sand Hill Road by Scott Kapoor from Andreessen. And the reason I love that book so much is it was the best book I've read that explains all of the stakeholders and venture capital to each other. Um, so you have venture investors, you have limited partners, you have founders, and like a lot of them don't always talk to each other in the same way, but this is a great book that allows founders to understand how venture capitalists think in terms of dealing with their stakeholders, in terms of dealing with their LPs, and how do LPs think in terms of what's important to them and who they're reporting to. So there's this, you know, it's, it's a, a, a very connected ecosystem. And I, I really liked the way that that book broke it down. And it gave founders a little insight into exactly what you were talking about, which is, you know, why do VCs act the way they do in terms of the, the fund that they have constructed? Um, but yeah, I, I, I completely agree that, you know, it's, it's, it's um, the most challenging part about venture is um, it's not even necessarily picking winners. It's finding winners in the first place, right? It, it's being able to have that opportunity to talk to those companies. I think most of us, it's not a super complicated job. Most of us, when we see a, an incredibly talented team and an incredibly big market, we can connect the dots easier. But man, just seeing those uh, companies in the first place is very, very challenging. Um, the other hard part, though, is 
building a portfolio that you can then take to your LPs, show them over time. Because at the end of the day, if you don't have those returns, if you're not returning capital to them, you're not going to raise another fund and you're not going to be able to invest in founders in the future. And so, you know, it's, it's managing that, uh, finding great companies with also a, a portfolio that you're, you're trying to build and construct. Yeah, I think I, we, I talk about it a lot uh, in terms of hunter versus gatherer, right? Like, I mean, VC is a sales, it's a sales game, right? Like you've got to be out yeah. there. You've got to be actually, you know, looking for those deals. Those deals won't just drop in your lap. Uh, and and again, completely echo what you said. Uh, Secrets of Sandhill Road is, a, is an absolutely incredible book. It's definitely worth uh, reading for anyone who's interested. Uh, I haven't uh, read it for a few years so i think i'm gonna to have to touch uh you know ha- have a look and, and brush up uh, on some of the stuff because I-, I think when i first read it there were lots of aha moments uh, and i'm i'm sure like reading it again today with with what i've learned over the last few years and what i've been doing over the last few years it'll resonate even further um but brent just as we kind of wrap things up like this pod is all about the incredible opportunity that entrepreneurship offers to th- those that can take the plunge uh, that's why i called it nothing ventured we're recording this in you know the so-called winter of uh, uh, VC or the VC winter in mid 2022 after you know over a decade long bull market you know what advice would you give to entrepreneurs looking to launch now especially within commerce which i think is taking you know a, a, a more of a beating almost than than others and for those that are already building what should they focus on yeah um I, let's just start with the already building uh, that's where we've spent a lot of our time over the last call it 4 to 6 weeks um you know, this, this winter, uh, it, it, it was slowly trickling down. Um, six months ago, a little, maybe a little over six months ago, it hit the public markets. Four months ago or so, it hit the late stage markets. And then fairly recently, I would say over the last four to six weeks, it really took a turn in the early stage markets. And so everyone is reacting real time to this stuff. Um, and so it's, it's, it's pretty exciting to be a part of. Uh, but what I'd say for, you know, founders that were in, ongoing discussions with that are in our portfolio or, um, you know, even externally in our portfolio, if you're an existing founder, um, it's all about planning for the downside case, right? I think we all hope that this correction, uh, comes back or, or lasts, uh, shorter time than, than we hope. Right. And we all, we hope that over the coming months we can get back to investing, but you have to plan for the worst case scenario, which what we're directing our companies to and I think uh, hearing chatter in the market, a lot of people are, are coalescing around this 24-month period. So if you're a founder building in the market right now, um, try to get to 24 months of runway. And um, some companies in our portfolio and, and externally are, you know, have the ability to do that because they recently raised capital you know, in the boom time. And that's great for them. But there are also others that even if they cut all the burn in the world, they're not going to get to 24 months. And so what we're trying to advise is the best case scenario is if, if you're executing well and your existing investors are supportive of the company, inside rounds are, are pretty popular right now, right? Um, it's not going to be the best terms, but these are a way to, for you to extend your runway in that downside scenario. So think about inside rounds, think about running tight processes to get that capital. Um, you know, we're planning for about 24 months with our portfolio companies, I think, there are a couple of things that you know, we might end up getting back to normal business sooner than later, just given there is, you know, I read a, a pretty crazy stat from PitchBook um, that there is $230 billion of dry powder sitting in venture capitalists' uh, accounts right now, right? And the largest of all time. And so 
a lot of people are in a wait and see mode in the market right now, but with so much capital, we cannot wait forever. Right. I mean, that's just the, the fact of the matter is we, we cannot it, wait forever. It, to and it's, all, it's also it's your job, right? Like at the end of the day, your yeah. LPs need you or want you to invest that that capital. It's, it's very similar, I think, to what happened during COVID times, right, where there was this so- sudden kind of yeah. uh, retraction for about three or four months, maybe six months, you know, people kind of held back, but then that capital started flowing. And, and of course, 2021 was one of the, you know, one of the biggest years for venture, right? Yes. Yeah, you're exactly right. Um, and so we've, you know, we, we've thought about that a lot recently and, um, you know, we're, it's our job. We raised a fund and and we need to deploy capital. And so we're actively looking still, uh, we're, we're meeting with founders, we're investing. I think the, the advice I have for existing founders is the bar is just raised higher, right? Um, it's always been high and I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it's just gone even higher. Um, now you have to be more efficient with your capital and you have to continue growth rates. Um, I think, a year ago, uh, downstream investors, what I mean by downstream is, is people that come after us, right? So growth investors, late stage investors, um, it was much more of fixation on growth at all costs because what we talked about before, hyper competitive markets, uh, the companies that are rising to the top are often going to be the winners. And so it was all about growth. Now it's about moderate growth. So you still have to keep growing, but the unit economic story has to be much more um it has to bring up uh, sooner in the, in the life cycle of the company. And so we're, we're just pushing a lot of our founders to figure out, you know, what are those optimal levels of spend that gets you to positive unit economics quicker, that gets you to a position where it's not 10 years from now that you're break even, but maybe a little bit sooner. Um, and so that's kind of what we're working with, with, with our companies and my advice for, for founders right now. Yeah. So it's that focus back on fundamental story that we hear kind of cyclically, it kind of comes, comes that's back right. around and around. I think the other thing it's always worth saying is, you know, in, in, in times like this, in times of adversity, you often see some of the best businesses being built. So it's actually a great time f- to be an investor, I would suggest, because you you should hopefully see some incredible businesses been, being born out of uh, out of these tough times. And equally, you know, those founders that can be capital efficient, those businesses that are capital efficient, that are focused on unit economics, that do understand that they need to, you know, really... Uh, derive value and not focus on valuation, right? So, i.e., build value in the company, not, uh, not, not, not in a term sheet. Let's put it that way. Um, you know, those are going to be the, the the businesses that hopefully will, you know, will do it incredibly well and and, and help return uh, return your fund down the track. So, yeah, I, I think I think that's really great advice. I think the twenty four month runway issue like and and again as a cfo it's you know we're, we're the first guys that get called to say right okay hey uh we've been told yeah. by by our vcs you need to extend we need to get our runway up to 24 months what can we do yeah it's tough there are lots of levers that companies can pull you don't have to just reduce headcount you can look at various things right. there are working capital kind of solutions that you can look at there are things that you can do yes to, to reduce burn by reducing salaries rather than necessarily getting rid of people equally you know you could focus on you know, just sell, selling and, and and actually find new products to sell or extend your runway in that way. I think, you know, the problem with a lot of firms, especially over the last five, 10 years is because capital has been so, you know, ubiquitous almost, uh, the, the assumption has been like, oh, we need to extend runway. We'll, we'll just go out and raise another round. That clearly has has kind of stopped for all but the, the absolute best businesses. Um, Brent, Correct. Brent, it's been absolutely incredible talking to you today thank you so much for your time can i ask you know for our listeners where where can they find you online you're on linkedin you're on twitter where's the best place for them to look for you 
Yep. Both of those. Um, LinkedIn, probably the best area to, to get in touch with me. Um, Twitter as well. And then email brent at m13.co. Uh, that's, you know, my, my emails are always open as well. So any, any, any time I can be get a hold of. Amazing. Brent, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Of course, Parrish, it was a real pleasure. Thank you very much for doing this. Thanks for listening to Nothing Venture, an Emerge One production. Follow us on social and at nothingventure.tech to make sure you never miss another episode. If you enjoyed this conversation, you can support us by giving us five stars on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners to understand the topics and guests that they'd like to hear about and from most. Drop us a message via the links in the show notes. And thanks again for your support.